This morning we will be looking at Luke chapter 7, the first half of the chapter, specifically verses 1 through 17. As our Lord had finished His sermon upon the plain, and now He begins to put into action in the lives of His followers His teaching. If you would please give attention to the reading of God's holy word. The word of the Lord is completely without error. The word of the Lord is completely sufficient. And the word of the Lord is completely authoritative, even over death itself. Luke chapter 7. After he had finished all his sayings in the hearing of the people, he entered Capernaum. Now a centurion had a servant who was sick and at the point of death, who was highly valued by him. When the centurion heard about Jesus, he sent to him elders of the Jews, asking him to come and heal his servant. And when they came to Jesus, they pleaded with him earnestly, saying, He is worthy for you, he is worthy to have you do this for him, for he loves our nation, and he is the one who built us our synagogue. And Jesus went with them. When he was not far from the house, the centurion sent friends, saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. Therefore, I did not presume to come to you, but say the word and let my servant be healed. For I too am a man set under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go. And he goes. And to another, come. And he comes. And to my servant, do this. And he does it. When Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him, and turning to the crowd that followed him, said, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. And when those who had been sent returned to the house, they found the servant well. Soon afterwards, he went to a town called Nain, and his disciples and a great crowd went with him. As he drew near to the gate of the town, behold, a man who had died was being carried out, the only son of his mother. And she was a widow, and a considerable crowd from the town was with her. And when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her, and said to her, Do not weep. Then he came up and touched the bier, and the bearers stood still, and he said, Young man, I say to you, arise. And the dead man sat up and began to speak. And Jesus gave him to his mother. Fear seized them all. And they glorified God, saying, A great prophet has arisen among us. And God has visited his people. And this report about him spread through the whole of Judea and all the surrounding country. Thus far the reading 
of God's Word. Let's pray for His blessing upon it. Heavenly Father, Lord, we ask this morning that You would teach us from Your Word, that You would show us, O Lord, the power of the Lord Jesus Christ, that You would remind us, O Lord, of the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ, and that You would grip us, O Lord, with love for the Lord Jesus Christ. This we ask. In Christ's name, amen. Our Lord has finished His Sermon upon the Plain, in which He has described for His disciples and for us the way in which following Him changes us. We are to be a people who count as blessings what Jesus counts as blessings, even if it seems difficult for us. We are to be a people who love our enemies, who seek to show the love of Christ to others in our daily lives. We are to refrain from judging others in a way that puts us as their superiors, but rather we are to seek with compassion to love the lost. And we are to build our lives upon the foundation of Jesus and His work. And now Jesus will put that into practice as He leaves the plain and goes into the town of Capernaum. He begins to show us how the most important things that are in our lives are not what we think is important, but rather they are faith, And hope. Because in the midst of all of our difficulties, in the midst of all of our challenges, what we are called to and what is the blessing for us is to know Jesus by faith and to have hope in Him. And so this morning, in matters literally of life and death, Jesus shows us the importance of faith, of hope, and that He is the one who rarely matters. Let's begin then by looking at verse 1 of chapter 7. Jesus finishes all of his sayings and he goes into a town of Capernaum. And now there was a man, Luke tells us, a centurion, a soldier who lived there who had a servant who was sick. So Jesus comes into a situation in which there is great need. And this is a challenge to his disciples, and to you and to me, as we think about faith and what faith means, the first challenge comes to our own sense of worth. The practical teaching of putting others before ourselves and of knowing that we stand in need before Christ is obvious here in this matter of life and death. Who is this centurion? Well, a centurion was a Roman officer in their army. Probably the equivalent of a captain today in our modern armed forces. He would have at least nominally under his command a hundred men. That's why he was called a centurion. But oftentimes 
These men were placed off very far on the frontier, in the boondocks of the Roman Empire, a place so far from Rome and their families and cultures that it may as well be Judea. And out there they would go and they would probably only command 70 or 80 men. They would not be up to full strength. And these would be the men who were the backbone of the Roman army. They would be sent out on this mission for long periods of time. A a tour of duty for someone in the United States Army might be a year in Iraq or Afghanistan. Maybe 18 months. And maybe they would be re-upped for a second or a third tour. But at least they weren't a centurion because a centurion's tour was usually 15 to 20 years. They would be sent off to the frontier. Very often they were not married and did not have families because could you imagine having a family and relating to a wife if you could get back every 15 or 20 years? It would not be easy. And so oftentimes the centurions would begin then to relate to the people that they were involved with, partly at least from selfish motives. If they could be involved with the people of the land and, and make sure that they were at least if not happy, at least calm and pleased, that made the centurion's job easier. He would want everything to be smooth. But oftentimes what would happen is these men would live their lives in these communities and they would begin to bond with the people. Such is the case that we have here. We have a centurion who has a servant who is far more than a slave. This is a man who is like family to the centurion. He is... Highly valued, Luke tells us. And now, that doesn't mean that he was a great asset, that he was the best of all servants, that he was a well-valued slave. No, the word here that Luke uses has the idea of honor and esteem built into it. It means that the centurion respected this servant. We might even say loved this servant. It was a person that was like family to the centurion. And so when this man becomes ill, and the illness gets worse, perhaps some of you have seen this, perhaps some of you have done this kind of a watch at the bed of a loved one or a relative, where you see the breathing getting more and more shallow, the eyes closed more and more, the fever running higher and higher, and You just wonder how much longer this can go on. It becomes a death watch. And the centurion is looking at this. And he knows, humanly speaking, that there's no hope for his friend. This is a great need that grips his heart. And Luke, I think, includes this story here for us because it is a need that grips all of us. Doesn't it? What greater need is there us than relief from death. We can all identify with it. Even if we haven't experienced it firsthand in a friend or loved one, we all know that it is out there somewhere waiting for us. Right? And we can try not to think about it. That's easier when you're younger than when you're older. But even if we're young and strong and vibrant and healthy, 
if we give any thought to death, to the fact that there will come a time when we are not here, when we cannot do things, when no doctor or medicine, no matter how experimental, can help us, we begin to see how helpless and weak we are. There's nothing we can do to stop it. All men are mortal, goes the syllogism. Perhaps not far enough, all men and women and children are mortal. It is the need above all needs. What can we do in the midst of discovering this? Perhaps you did not want the pastor as you came here on a Sunday morning to worship at church and celebrate, to get you to think about your own death, to depress you, to bring you down. After all, the pastor can't do anything about that. I can't stop death from coming and visiting you and your family. So what do we do? The story of the centurion is, is helpful in this because the only thing that we can do is, is seek help. We can't find help in doctors. We can't find help in medicine. They can help us to push off that hour of death, but they cannot solve the problem and the riddle of death. But even seeking help is hard because it requires us to say that we don't have all the answers. It requires us to humble ourselves and to say we need help. Think about what that was like for the centurion. Here is a man who is in charge. Here is a man who commands others, who's well paid, who's in authority, and he needs help. And the only thing that he can do is to go to the elders of the Jews. He has to go to people who are beneath him on the social ladder. He has to go to people whose job it is to be directed by him. Because you see, he knows the only one who can help is Jesus. He's heard of Jesus. He's heard of the things that he has done. And he knows that Caesar himself cannot save his servant. The only one who could possibly help is Jesus. But do you notice that that's where the centurion starts? Far too often aren't we tempted to make that the place where we end? We know we need help and we start with our own resources. And we start with our own skills. And we start with the skills and resources of others. And only when everything else is exhausted, then we say, well, I guess we could try Jesus. Jesus is not something you try. Jesus is the one whom you go to in the time of need and trouble. Jesus is the one that you trust to carry you through the tempest and the storm. But this is just the start. He goes seeking Jesus and he seeks them through the elders of the Jews. The elders come up and they're very eager for Jesus to help. Luke tells us that they come and they plead with Jesus earnestly. And the language there is the language of emotion. We might even imagine tears in their eyes, a crack in their voice. They, they very much want this man to be helped. 
They very much want Jesus to help. And so what they do is they come to Jesus and they bring the best possible argument that they can. After all, Jesus is insanely busy. You can almost imagine in Capernaum there's a whole crowd trailing behind Him, wanting to hear things and also wanting help, wanting physical healing. Jesus, I can't breathe. Help me. Jesus, I have an infected foot. Help me. Jesus, my mother's sick. Help her. And so the Jews know they need to get Jesus' attention and they need to find a way to have Jesus help the centurion. And so they bring the best possible argument that they could bring. They go to Jesus and they say, Jesus, this man is worthy. He's worthy to have you do this for him. Of all of the people behind you, he's the one most worth your time. He should be at the head of the line. Do you know what he's done? He loves our nation. As odd as that sounds, as crazy as that is, Lord, he loves our nation. And he does this in a, in a very tangible way. Look over there at that synagogue. Do you see that synagogue? It only exists because of him. He didn't just help build it. He didn't just donate some money. Jesus, He gave us the whole thing. Who else here could possibly, in this whole city, be more worthy of your attention? But you see, this argument focuses just on the external, doesn't it? It's not as if they even said, Jesus... This man is worthy because he's a humble man. Because he's a godly man. Because he's a loving man. Because he worships the Lord. No, they say, look over there what he's done. And isn't that often how we approach God? We come to God and we put our works and our tasks in front, and we say we are worthy. This was obvious in the news this past month when a famous leader and politician who is wealthy beyond anything we could imagine said that I'll have no problem getting into heaven. Have you seen all the things I've done? God would be lucky to have me. I've done this and that and the other thing. And we can look at that and in the newspaper say that's crude. But isn't that the kind of calculus that we're tempted to make all the time? To say, Lord, do you know how much I've given? Lord, do you know how much I've helped others? Lord, can you see everything that I have done? And you see, it's not a surprise that that's how the Jews come to Jesus. Because you see, that's how they saw themselves. They saw themselves as worthy before God because of externals. And this is the default position that we have. And this position of thinking that we can see, thinking that we know, is actually worse than being blind. You remember just a few verses ago in chapter 6, verse 39, the story of the two blind men. And how can they possibly get along? And we looked at that and we said, what could be worse than traveling Blind with another blind man. The only thing that could be worse is traveling with someone who's blind who thinks he can see. Because then they make no accommodation at all, do they? 
you've had this experience. Perhaps you've never been blind, but you've had the experience of having your picture taken with someone who's just a little bit too aggressive with the flash on the camera. And they tell you to make sure you look right here for maximal retinal damage. And they flash it, and there's bulbs going off in your eyes minutes later. And someone says, are you okay? And you say, oh, of course I'm fine. I I know exactly what I am. I'm fine. And then you begin to walk, and you realize that coffee tables are not good things for shins. And you begin to notice that that dog toy that you thought was not there actually is. And perhaps some of you that have small children realize that there's not much that's more painful than a Lego on a bare foot. But you see, you don't make any accommodations. If you actually were blind, you would be careful. You would ask if the floor is clear. You would put your hands along the furniture. But the most dangerous place that we can be in is to think that we can see when we cannot. And that's where the perspective of faith comes in. You see, this centurion hears the report come back that Jesus is coming. Jesus goes anyway. In spite of the foolishness of the elders, he goes on and the report comes back to the centurion. Jesus is coming. Jesus is coming. And by the way, I'm sure he's going to heal the servant. You should have heard the elders. They told them how great you are, how worthy you are. They told them about the synagogue. They told them about all the things that you've done. And what does the centurion do? Well, he hears this report and he sends second messengers. And the second messengers come to Jesus and they say, Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. He realizes they're coming because they think the centurion is worthy and deserve him. But the centurion knows the truth. And he knows that Jesus knows the truth. And so he says, I'm not worthy at all. And you can't tell from the translation, but he actually brings it down even a notch lower. You see, when the elders say that he is a worthy man, they lift him up and use a very exalted word. When the centurion says, I'm not worthy, he uses the word that we would use for good enough. You know what that's like, don't you? There are things that, tools that you use, food that you eat that are worthy of being praised, right? And then there's other things that you have where you say, well, I guess this is good enough. I don't want to go out to the store again. It'll do. You see, the centurion says, not only, Jesus, am I not worthy, I won't even do. Don't waste your time coming here to me. I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. Therefore, I did not presume to come to you. He, he repeats back in a negative way what the, the Jews have said. He said, I didn't ask you to come. I just asked for help because I'm not worthy to have you come. You see, true faith sees ourselves clearly. And it also sees Jesus clearly, doesn't it? Because what he says to Jesus is, I don't even need you to come. I know what it's like to be a man under and in authority. I tell someone to go and he goes. Because I have authority. And I have authority because I'm under authority. 
Because the general tells me. And the senators tell the general. And Caesar himself tells the senators. It goes all the way up to the top. That's the authority I have. And Jesus, I know you have that kind of authority. Now stop and think about that. He says, I can tell a man to come or go. I can tell a servant to do this or that. Jesus, you have authority over life and death. Do you hear that in what he says? He says, you can just speak and death will be gone. Death has to obey you, Jesus. He sees clearly who Jesus is. Now, this also brings us to the reality of faith in his life because I think sometimes we think about faith as some kind of vague emotional sensibility. Kind of like the way the modern world views love. If love is floating on a puffy cloud and smiling all the time, then faith is walking along oblivious to life's problems, being cheerful in spite of them. But that's not the kind of faith that the Bible speaks about. It's not the kind of faith that the centurion has. It's not the kind of faith that Jesus calls you to today. This kind of faith, biblical real faith, is risky. He says to Jesus, I believe who you are. All you need to do is say the word and he'll be healed. What's the risk? Well, couldn't Jesus have said, well, that's fine. If you don't want me to come, I won't come. Bully for you. He could have just walked away. He could have left the centurion hanging there. Jesus is under no obligation at all. Do you think about that in the kind of faith that you are called to? Jesus is under no obligation to save you. None. He is under no obligation to make your life good. He is under no obligation to spare you any of the pains of hell and destruction. None. But is it the glory of a risky biblical faith that we know that Jesus will not leave us? Not because of who we are, but because of who He is. We can trust Him with everything we have, just like the centurion. We don't need to see proof. We don't need to show our worth. You see, real faith forces us to think outside of ourselves and to place our trust on another, on the Lord Jesus Christ. And so today, Jesus is your object of faith. First and foremost, for eternal life. For there is no hope of life without Jesus. But even for the believer in Jesus Christ, He is the object of your faith for your marriage. He is the object of your faith for your children. He is the object of your faith for your community and your nation. He is the one you go to. He is the one you trust. You don't try and hedge your bets. You don't try and build up a defense. You trust Him with everything. And you are honest before Him. I have no hope without you, Jesus. And this kind of faith allows Jesus to change everything. This great miracle occurs. 
The man is saved from death. And Jesus doesn't even go there. He doesn't even see him. He just speaks the word of life. The same word that spun into existence all that we see and know. And there's something interesting here. Luke, our careful historian, the doctor, leaves out all of the details. He doesn't tell us exactly how the man is sick. He doesn't tell us how he was healed. He doesn't even tell us the instant that he was made whole. Matthew does. Why does Luke leave out all these details? Because Luke doesn't want us focusing on the problem. Luke wants us focusing on Jesus and the faith of the centurion. A real kind of faith that we have. This is a real miracle. It is so groundbreaking that Jesus is said to marvel. Jesus only marvels twice in all of the Bible. Here, when he sees the power of faith in this Gentile centurion, and once when he is in his hometown and he marvels at their unbelief before his word. And now, this is not that Jesus doesn't know what's going on. He's surprised in shock and alarm. He marvels in the same way that you or I might look and say, that is wonderful. And he turns to the crowd and he says, do you see this? This is the kind of faith that I would have for you. Well, in matters of life and death, there's not one story but two. We've seen a matter of faith, and now Jesus continues down the road, as it were, to a matter of hope. This situation is perhaps more tragic. There is a second story here, because while faith is important, while faith is critical, while faith is necessary, it is not enough. Because what feeds faith is hope. Isn't it? We have faith and we trust in the Lord Jesus Christ so that we might have hope. And so here Jesus comes to another small town and everybody, it seems, in the town is out for this funeral procession. The situation appears far worse than the centurion. That man's servant was dying. This man is dead. That man was wealthy and powerful. This woman is a widow and helpless. And there is a very public display of grief. There are professional mourners wailing. The whole town is out. And there's something that we notice that makes this even worse. The woman is walking out ahead of the funeral procession. Because that's what you did in those days. But do you notice she's walking alone? She has no husband. She's a widow. Her son has died. She has no children to comfort her. He was an only child. Can you imagine the state of shock she must be in as she's walking? Grief. Unbearable. Hopeless and helpless, knowing that she now has no one to provide for her. There's no social security administration in Judea. There's no salvation army. There's no welfare bureau. 
Do you know what happens to widows who've lost all their sense of support? They die of starvation and lack. And you can imagine this is all going through her mind, the grief that's crushing her, and knowing now there is absolutely no hope. How can she possibly go on? But that's when Jesus sees her. Notice the order of the story. You see, we are tempted to rewrite Luke and to have the woman walking ahead and spy out of the corner of her eye Jesus and to run over to Him and ask Him for help that she needs Him. But that's not what happens. It's, it's Jesus who sees her. It's Jesus who intervenes in her life when she is still hopeless. It's Jesus who comes and has compassion upon her when she doesn't even know compassion is possible. This is your Jesus. He comes to you before you even know or are able to ask for help. What a king we serve. He has compassion on her. The word that Luke uses here is a very strong word. He has compassion from the depths of his heart, we might say. From deep down in his gut, we might say. It is an overflowing of compassion. And he looks at her because he truly knows her pain and her hopelessness. He truly knows her loss. After all, that's why he came to live and die, isn't it? Because He knows the hopelessness of His people. He knows that without Him, without His work, without His atonement, we are all lost. Who knows that better than Jesus? And so He comes up to her and approaches her and He speaks to her and He says, Do not weep. Now, these are not mere words coming from Jesus. I dare say, if I were there in that place as the pastor, and walked up to that woman and said, do not weep. She would have every right to smack me. It would be insensitive. What do you mean, don't weep? This is a time for grief. This is pain and agony. But you see, the difference is, in expressing His care for her, Jesus knows what is coming. Jesus knows the reality that she doesn't know. Jesus knows that it's not hopeless. Jesus knows there is hope. And more yet, He knows He is bringing the hope to her. But He doesn't just speak, does He? He then also acts. He comes up and He touches, in verse 14, the dead body. Now that seems like nothing an act of compassion. But you have to understand that by that very act, Jesus has just made Himself ceremonially unclean for seven days. It was something you didn't do. Everyone would be aghast. They would wonder, why is He doing this? Does He know her that well? He must really have compassion and longing for her. And then He speaks. The same word that healed brings to life. He says, Arise to the man. Get up. 
And again, we can imagine those who are around when they hear him. What is he talking about? He's not going to get up. He's dead. This is not a healing, Jesus. This is not a leper to be healed. This is not someone who's really, really sick. This guy is dead. And you can imagine the surreal nature of it all. To see who Jesus is. To see the hope break through to hopelessness. Luke puts it in such a marvelous way to me. He says, the dead man sat up. And we say to ourselves, dead men don't sit. And they don't talk. They're dead. But you see, Jesus has broken through. He's brought His real reality into her reality. And the dead man is now no longer dead. Now what has He done? He's brought about now the reality of hope into her life. Because he didn't just make the widow feel better. He didn't just give her the greatest pep talk ever. He didn't just tell her everything would be all right. Even in bringing the man back to life, he hasn't solved that problem forever either. The man's still going to die someday, isn't he? The woman is still going to die someday. But you see what Jesus has done is He's changed their reality. He's shown them that God still cares. That He always has. He actually uses the same turn of phrase that Elijah uses in 1 Kings 17 when raising another son from the dead. You see, God is in the business of bringing hope to His people. God has power over life and death and the soul itself. And this is who Jesus is. And this is the hope of all of us, isn't it? We all know we will die, don't we? Even the youngest of you. You know that. You may not think about it much. But you've watched as great-grandma and great-grandpa and grandma and grandpa have died. But we all also know Jesus' compassion, don't we? And from this we all know Jesus' power. And the promise that Jesus gives to us, that the hour is coming when those who are in the tombs will hear Jesus' voice and will come out to be resurrected. You see, our hope is not in getting past death. Our hope is not in life again. Our hope is not even in life eternal. Our hope is in Jesus. For you see, He is the hope of all of us. He is the one who matters. And then you see this marvelous reaction here as the crowd sees Jesus. And in verse 16, they are struck with awe and they begin to glorify God because they know that God is in their midst. That's what happens when you have hope. We trust in the Lord and it gives us hope which brings about joy in our lives. And then we see the last thing that faith and hope bring to us. The report about Jesus spread throughout the whole of Judea and the surrounding country. You see, when we trust in Jesus and He has given us hope, we cannot help 
but want to bring that hope to others. It spills out of us. And the report of Jesus is spread wide. Do you have faith and trust in Jesus today? Do you have hope against all circumstances in Jesus today? If you do, that is a blessing. But if you do, will the report of that hope be spread throughout all of Katy and the surrounding regions? As we are known as a people who trust Jesus and hope in Jesus. Let's pray.